I'm Richard Randall. Uh, let's do this. I'll tell you what. We've got about 45 minutes. I want to cram in as much as possible in that amount of time. I can't think of anything more important and serious uh, than this subject matter. I want you to go back to a S- September 11th, and we were attacked. Uh, it's the biggest wake-up call in the world. Fast forward to the speech, the president's speech, Barack Obama's speech in Cairo. That wasn't a big deal for us. The average American didn't say, oh, huge game changer for us, but there are a lot of people in the world who said it was. Follow that with the Arab Spring, and we're going to have regime change. We're going to have democracy throughout the Middle East. And was that naive enough for you or not? Thank goodness one country, Egypt, had a military that was strong enough to say, sorry, Muslim Brotherhood, not going to happen. And my good friend Roy Thompson grew up in in Egypt and told me, you know what, if this gets out of control, the Egyptian military will step in. They've done that in the past, and they will do that again. Sure enough, Egypt did not fall into disarray and collapse and chaos the way Libya and Syria and others have. That's not bad enough that the Middle East is is in in dire straits and that there's chaos and that there is a breeding ground for terrorism throughout there and that we won't we have Democrats in this country who don't even want to vet the people coming into the United States from those countries. Europe is in a hell of a mess, and hopefully we will have an election in France that results in the female equivalent of Donald Trump winning that election. But all of the refugees and the chaos in Europe is attributable to the Middle East, which is attributable to the Arab Spring, which is caused by Barack Obama and the United States. My guest is uh, Bill Warner, and it depends on what headline you want to look at, Bill. You know, it's... uh, Everything is so polarized. I've got a political Islam. Political Islam has subjugated civilizations for 1,400 years about Dr. Bill Warner, the author. Then I've got, this goes back to July 2015. You're probably not surprised by this because you, like Pam Geller and a lot of other people, are going to get attacked no matter what you say. Bill Warner, a notorious Islamophobe, hate monger, yes. lying about Islam. Which Bill Warner do I have on the show today? Welcome aboard. Well, you have the Bill. You have the Bill Warner who will tell you what Muhammad said and did, and what, what Allah said. Hit it! Uh, I'll let you do the talking. You're you are the expert on this, and uh, I will learn as we go along. Uh, I'll let you go through the history, but I especially want us to talk about what is going on now, and especially since the Arab Spring and what we're looking forward to. I, I was looking at some numbers in terms of of Europe, doctor, in terms of jihad by population, and I'm looking at population growth for the average French family, Swedish family, one point one, one point two, and then I. I'm looking at Muslim families that have gone to those country having six, seven, or eight children. It's only a couple of generations between before France is an Islamic state. Well, all of this can be dealt with if we're willing to face the fact of who we're, who our enemy is. All right. Let me point out something to you. We have wasted blood and treasure in Afghanistan and Iraq, and never once have we ever asked ourselves the question, who is the enemy? Oh, we hear all about, oh, this is a war on terror. That's a war on a tactic. You don't defeat a tactic. So we have been, we're unwilling to face the enemy, and the enemy is political Islam. Now, let me be clear what I mean by political Islam. It's not a vague statement. Islam is found in the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. Now, then, most people think that Islam is a religion based on the Quran, but there's not enough in the Quran to be a Muslim. 
But there's 91 verses in the Quran which state that every Muslim is to imitate Muhammad. And where do we get Muhammad? Simple, from his biography, the Sirah, and his Hadith, the traditions. So Islam is the Muhammad plus Allah. So now then, here's my, I'm going to, I have to get to my point. Over half of the doctrine found in the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith is about the Kafir, you and me. It's not about how to be a Muslim, it's how to treat people like you and me. So that's the part of Islam I object to, not the religion. I don't give a flip one way or another about heaven and hell for the Muslim. But I'm very concerned about how we as a nation are to be treated by Islam as a political system. The average person, including me, and I'm embarrassed to say this, 140 IQ, law degree, uh, trial attorney, uh, television anchor and reporter and undergraduate degrees and on and on and on. I didn't even know I was a Kafir. What is a Kafir? <laughs> well, by the way, join the majority. It, knowledge can see what is, wisdom can see what is not. And one of the things you have to see that is not there is a training in Islam. You cannot learn what, the thing I just told you about Islam is the system and doctrine found in the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. I doubt you'll find that hardly in any school in the United States or Europe. Uh, so the fact that you don't know about it means you're just normal. Good. But is it not important to know what a man believes? And so instead of talking about terror, we need to be talking about Islam. Because once you study Islam, you'll stop using the word terror and you'll start using the word jihad. Well, and especially because one of the things when we're dealing with this with North Korea is uh, they uh, believe in brinksmanship. And, and North Korea does not think the way we do. Uh, many in Islamic countries do not think the way we do. Americans have a, a, a bad habit of projecting our thought process, our values, our empathies, our sympathies onto other countries and, and saying, well, if I were in North Korea, I would certainly do this under the circumstances. And if I were in Syria, I would do this under the circumstances, but we need to stop looking at it that way. We need to start looking at all of these things, especially ourselves, how our enemy looks at us. Seems reasonable when you say it, doesn't it? It does. And yet, how, we, how do we explain the fact that, for instance, in Afghanistan, General Stanley McChrystal, who was for a while in charge of the whole operation, wrote a detailed strategic vision. In this strategic vision, which was heavily redacted for tactical information, there were three words that did not occur, Islam, Jihad, and Muslim. Now, how are you going to defeat an enemy that, whose name you refuse to call? So, and, and by the way, I don't know why we don't study this because it's fascinating material. And yet we find, let me give you another example of our ignorance. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, which is called the Buckle on the Bible Belt, or it used to be. Don't know if it is anymore or not. And you, you will look long and hard to find a Christian minister who is willing to engage a Muslim in discussion about converting to Christianity. Because the reason that they don't do it is that no matter who they are, whether they're a government official or a priest, they have chosen the path of ignorance with regards to Islam. And yet how are we going to accomplish anything if we don't know how our enemy thinks? Oops, did I say it was our enemy? Well, what is self-declared by Islam is that we are the enemy of Islam, whether we accept that role or not. That is where we're going to pick it up, because I didn't 
wake up this morning wanting to be anybody's enemy other than those who have chosen to be my enemy. And I, I didn't wake up at, in life or, or uh, at any point in life wanting to be anybody's enemy, but there are certainly people who view me that way. And, and one of the other things, and I do want to talk to you about this, uh, whether it is that preacher or whether it is college professors or journalists, is whether they are afraid to talk about this sort of thing because they're afraid that there are repercussions for doing that. We'll pick it up where uh, there where we come back. Uh, my best, uh, my guest, I'm sorry, not feeling well today, but my guest is Dr. Bill Warner. Uh, political Islam is the subject. Take a short break after this. I'm Richard Randall, my guest, Political Islam. And this is a different way, honestly, it's a different way of me thinking about Islam. It is a different way of me thinking about a war on what, terrorism? Well, it turns out uh, it's not a war on terrorism because a war on terrorism would kind of imply that we're fighting the Irish Republican Army or we're fighting, you know, some Italians who want to be anarchists in the 1920s. Uh, that's not what we're fighting, but people are afraid to call it. Apparently, and I've got to believe uh, when we look at this, uh, Dr. Bill Warner, that a general like Stanley McChrystal would love to cut through the BS and call it for what it was, but he was getting pressure from Washington not to do that. For the average American, uh, either looking back in terms of history and knowing our place in terms of, of how a big chunk of the world views us as Kaffirs, or going forward, what we ought to be concerned about, what we ought to be worried about. And, and honestly, there are a lot of things that I, that I do worry about. I don't want to be paranoid, but there's a lot of things to be concerned about. I yield the floor to you, Doctor. We've talked about being afraid, in particular before the break. There's two kinds of fears that affect those who speak out against Islam. First is there's the fear of assassination, which actually rarely happens. But let's be very clear about this. Assassinating a critic of Islam is Sunnah, S-U-N-N-A, because Muhammad did it. Let me quote you from a little hadith, a little tradition of Muhammad. Muhammad at the mosque. Who will kill Ashraf, who has offended Allah and his prophet? Ashraf wrote a poem. I will, Muhammad. But in order to do so, I will need to deceive him. May I deceive him? Yes, deceive him. And he used deception, went out and killed the man who was a poet who wrote a poem about Islam, actually about Muhammad. So like this was the first version of the Muhammad cartoons. But this sort of assassination is very rare. Usually here's, here's what will happen to you 100% guaranteed. If you speak about the truth of Islam, as I just did in terms of assassinating the critics, People who are not Muslim but who are apologists for Islam will assassinate your character. I proudly have been called one of America's top ten bigots by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Why? Because I tell people what Muhammad said and did. CARE, the Committee on American Islamic Relations, has said I'm part of the inner circle of hate. Now, I've learned something about this. Most people are terrified of having their character assassinated and being called names. So, therefore, most people shut up. The problem with shutting up is you have yielded the field to other people. And, and we've seen a lot of people, and, and maybe, you know, I don't want to get into the whole Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity and a lot of these other things. There are so many components at work. But there are folks who want to shut 
me up. They want to shut you up. They want to shut anybody up who talks about this issue whatsoever. And, 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 you know, we're seeing a mainstream. I, I can't believe this, doctor, but uh, I'm, I'm looking at the women's march, for instance, and I'm uh. thinking to myself, wait a minute. Do all of these women in their little vagina hats and their, their little, uh, you know, vagina costumes, for God's sakes, how embarrassing is that? Marching around. <laughs> and, and that's the vision that Islam has of America. American women dress up like private parts and march around. And yet one of the pe- people who organizes this, one of the women who makes sure that that a headscarf is part of the entire thing is an activist from New York. How is this getting mainstreamed on college campuses, in marches and the rest? Let me give you a personal example. There was a woman who just retired uh, last Friday from Vanderbilt University. Now, I used to be proud of going to Vanderbilt, but I'm not so proud now. She mentioned in a graduate seminar uh, something that she said, this idea is politically incorrect, but this is what I believe. It traumatized the university. The university read a front page article in the Tennessean saying how embarrassed they were that she had said this, that people were offended. But get this, at a major university, the president of the university established a counseling hotline for those who've been traumatized about hearing an idea that offended them. What was, God forbid, what was the idea? Had to do with gay marriage. (laughs) These people were so trauma. And by the way, this event took four days on the front page of the Tennessee newspaper, which is the largest newspaper in Tennessee. And the chancellor said, I'd fire her if I could, but she has tenure for expressing an idea in a graduate seminar. The people were traumatized. Well, you can imagine how I traumatize people if that's the case. Well, let me ask you a question about this traumatization then, because I look over the course of the summer, didn't know who the heck Milo was at the beginning of the summer. And then as time went by, I saw him popping up and a lot of young people kept making reference to him. And he started warning the United States about the repercussions of what was going on in Europe. But one of the things as a gay man that he kept telling gay people was that if you are honestly worried and your main issue is who is going to make your wedding cake and trying to force a couple of Christians who don't want to do it, take them to court, drag them through, shut their business down over a wedding cake. Maybe you start uh, ought to start thinking about who's going to be offended by gay marriage, about people who are throwing folks off, who are gay off of buildings in Iraq and in Syria and all over the Middle East. It's astounding what people will choose to confront, but usually what they want to do is confront something they won't hurt them. And so they don't want to confront Islam because they don't want to get hurt with their character being assassinated. Let's go back to the Women's March. Yes. This all had to do with Donald Trump acting like he was in the locker room and talking about groping some privates. All right. I find that offensive. But you know what I find even more offensive is clitorectomies, female genital mutilation. And yet all this energy was put out from locker room talk. Where are these same women when it comes to the issue of of women having their vaginas cut out? Not grabbed. But no, no, cutting them out is totally fine. We're not going to criticize that. Maybe they should have had that on their little costumes or on their little hats. Maybe they should have had a, a, a bloody uh, after uh, afterward and oh. the scar tissue and all of the rest and because we just had this in the news. It wasn't a huge story, but we did find some stories talking about a Muslim doctor who was performing these types of operations in the past week or so. Which is, in my opinion, a 
criminal act. I have daughters. I have granddaughters. This is a this is a this is a horrid criminal act. It has no virtue at all, and yet we're silent in the face of evil. What it allows? This is an old saw, but nevertheless true. Evil does not prosper because of the strength of its proponents. Evil prospers because those who should tell it to shut down and shut up are silent. And silence is what's killing us. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'll probably catch flack for that. And that's okay. I'm used to catching flack. There are a lot of people who don't like me and some people who really do like me. And that's why it's a very popular show. Uh, <laughs> I, I need to get ready for a break here. I know we've got limited time with. Mr. Drain, we've only got uh, less than 15 minutes with Dr. Bill Warner. Hope to make him a frequent guest here on the program. Uh, I'm looking at some of your notes, doctor, and, and I just have to ask you about this. Islam's uh, ethical system is dualistic and is not based on the golden rule. I mean, we like to base everything on the golden rule, and, and the only modification we have for most people is uh, treat people the way you want to be treated, or they say, no, 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 don't do that. Treat people the way they would want you to treat them. Uh, but that sounds like a very dramatic difference from what we are talking about in terms of political Islam. And then the other thing has to do with the march we were talking Talking about the Women's March, the great majority, 96% of all Islamic doctrine about women subjugates them. And I see all of these women, New York, Washington, all the rest, subjugating themselves. I don't get it. I don't either. So we... I have a slight echo. Is it is is my audio good? You no, know, you sound just absolutely fine. And 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 I'll let you uh, give me the summary version because I know you're short on time. Everybody wants to talk to you. You've got another interview lined up. Uh, rather than me peppering you with questions, I'll let you give us a summary of where we're at and where we're going and what the average okay. American ought to be concerned about and doing about this. All right. Let me start with the fact you mentioned dualism. This is a principle which I discovered. I'm a scientist, and so I'm, it turns out to be the first scientist to study Islamic text. And one of the things that was very confusing to me was how confusing Islam was. And so I began to dig into it using statistical analysis, and suddenly it just leapt off the page at me. Islam is a dualistic system that always has two views of everything. And one of those things it has two views about is how to treat a person. Our civilization is built on the intellectual cornerstone of critical thought and the ethical cornerstone of the golden rule, treating others as we would be treated. Islam does not have that. Islam says the kafir, the non-believer, is not, a Muslim is never their true friend. This is not a verse. There's 12 verses which say this. Well, think about that. That means that you're not really equal to a Muslim if you can't really be their friend. We have ethical rules such as a Muslim does not cheat another Muslim in business. A Muslim does not touch another Muslim's wife. A Muslim does not kill another Muslim. A Muslim does not lie to another Muslim. Uh, do you notice something here about this list of do's and don'ts? It's all Muslim. It's not talking about Kafirs like me. It is not. Now then, let's get this straight. A Muslim can be very friendly with a Kafir, but never their true friend. Do you know the difference between being friendly and being a friend? If you are confused about that, walk on to any car lot and you'll immediately discover a lot of people who are very friendly, <laughs> but they're not actually your friend. You got it. So this dualism is also found not only in ethics, but in the Quran itself. The Quran always has two attitudes about things. It has tolerance. You have your religion. I have mine. Let there be no compulsion in religion. Very tolerant. Sounds like the First Amendment. But it has other verses which are, say, just the opposite. Kill the kafir if they don't convert. So 
we have Islam's greatest strength is its dualism because, well, that's one of its great strengths. And in what it is, it always has a pleasant face it can give you. Let's summarize this with Muhammad's life. He preached the doctrine of Islam as a religious doctrine for 13 years in Mecca and converted 150 people, about 10 a year. They drove him out of Mecca. He went to Medina where he became an, an apologist, I'm sorry, an, a, a politician and a jihadist. And when he died, every Arab within his horizon was now converted. Let's re-summarize that. Muhammad was a peaceful religious preacher in Mecca and he was a violent jihadist in Medina. So which one is the real Muhammad? Well, the answer is they're both equally real. So therefore, a jihadist such as Islamic State is pure Muslim. But on the other hand, the very nice professional engineer down at work who practices the five pillars and doesn't practice jihad, he's also a Muslim. Well, they're so different. That is the nature of Islam. You have two different doctrines, one for either case. How do we know when when it comes to allowing somebody into this country? And and we say, well, we've been allowing people into this country from Muslim countries for a long, long time. It has become all that more important based on terrorism and and refugees masking themselves as terrorists, uh, whether it's the United States or Europe. Uh, How do we have any clue in the world which of of these two groups we are allowing into this country? Or are there people who are, in fact, both? Where there's really no way of telling, is there? And that's the really the most ominous thing about this is, remember, a Muslim can deceive the kafir. Now think about that. If they can deceive you asking them questions about what they believe, all of a sudden you're, on, you're not on good ground. So therefore, deception means that the water is never clear, nor can we ever be sure about what we're dealing with. To me, the thing that I dislike most about Islam is the 12 verses which say that a Muslim can never be my friend, because this means there's one and a half billion people out there that I really can't talk with a way that has any clarity to it without thinking, are you deceiving me? And yet this is what we're doing. We're bringing in country, we're bringing in people to our country and we're not really asking them about what they really believe. And, I and even if we were, they would have every right under their religion to absolutely lie to us without any issue at all, correct? You've, you've stated the problem concisely. How do we deal with this? Well, I think we first have to talk about the fact that we need to talk about the fact, all right? And yet what I've discovered earlier in this show is if you talk like I do, trust me, people say very bad things about you. They imply that you're not a very moral person. By the way, no one who criticizes me ever says, well, Bill, there aren't 12 verses. They don't say that. They say you're a bigot for talking about the 12 verses that say the Muslim is not your friend. You know, I, I'm worried about this country. I'm worried about me the, too. I'm worried about uh, the world. I'm worried about the future. I'd like, you know, I want a big kumbaya moment where everybody gets me along too. and every religion respects each other. But it, it appears that we've got some folks who just don't want to play along with those rules. This is true. And for 1400 years, Islam has, has brutalized the non, the Kafir, the non-Muslim. I'm the first scientist to ever ask this question. How many people have been killed in the process of jihad? Well, it turns out the number is 270 million people over 1400 years, oh 60 gosh. million Christians, 10 million Buddhists, 80 million Hindus, and 120 million Africans. These facts are factual. And yet who wants to talk about them? No, no, no. If you talk about that, Bill, you're a bad person. But what I'm trying to say is, is we've struggled against Islam for 1400 years and we have consistently lost. If you keep doing the same wrong thing, I say you'll keep getting the same wrong result. We need to stop and look at what we're doing and why we're not winning. 
you know, and one of the things I want to look at, and, I, and I'm looking at the time because I do know you have another interview, just final thought, and I guess it's food for the next conversation, and that is, I go back to National Geographic. They did an expose maybe six months, a year ago, talking about Yazidi women who had been able to um, escape, and, and uh, they were in refugee camps, but some of them had been sex slaves. They, they had people who would pray to Allah uh, by the side uh. of their bed, rape them, and then pray to Allah uh, when they were done, and and this wasn't an isolated incident. This went on over and over and over. And I think to myself, we are talking about uh, at least a, a sizable group of people within a, a subset, perhaps of others, but who look at Yazidis or Kafirs or or whatever the same way that the Japanese looked at those uh, in World War II, those Americans who would surrender. They were less than dogs because they surrendered and had no pride. Or Germans who would look at Jews and others and say they were less than human as well. There's something horribly wrong here. It's terribly wrong. People are being abused. And by the way, those sex slaves, that is pure Islam. All right. That's not some wonky, misunderstood. Muhammad had sex slaves and sex slaves were taken in battle. So these sex slaves are pure Islam. Islamic State is pure Islam. We'll have to continue it there. I, I know I'll let you get to the next interview. God bless you. Thank you for joining us here today. Thank you for cutting through all the political correctness, because I'm sick and tired of the political correctness. I want to get to what the truth is, and so we can start, if there's a problem, we have to deal with what the problem is realistically, and there is a problem. I look forward to you joining us again on the program, and I appreciate you being brave enough to take the slings and the arrows and and the threats (laughs) and all of the rest in order to get the word out to the rest of us. Uh, You have a great day. God bless you. I look forward to hearing you on the program again. Thank you, sir. Thanks right. for inviting me. Bye-bye. Take, uh, there we go. We'll take a short, uh, and I'll take your comments on that. Uh, was that, what are we listening to there? Were we listening to a smart, rational person who has studied Islam?